Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. She's the only one after that trial that has to live with this for the rest of his life. Those jurors go on their way and that city's gonna keep operating. But this money was necessary for this particular plaintiff to support what he needs. Please rise, court is now in session. All right, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry and uh, Sin City Yvonne Godfrey. Uh, (laughs) Yvonne is out in Las Vegas at the uh, American Association of Justice Conference. You want to tell us, give give our listeners an update on how things are going at AAJ? I mean, you hear Vegas and you think justice. Am I right? right. (laughs) That's right. So I just got here yesterday, which was Sunday. Um, We're recording on a Monday. And I did not realize I'm not a big UFC fan. I mean, I just, uh, so that was happening this past weekend. So it was extra nuts. I, I don't know. I don't know how nuts Vegas regularly is, but, um, so it was kind of a big adjustment, but then today was the first blown full blown day of the AAJ conference. So that's been really fun so far. Very cool. Very cool. Well, uh, let me go ahead and tell everybody who we've got on the show today. We have Ryan Saba and Robert Carwin, or uh, Robert, I believe, goes by Bob. But Ryan and and Bob, how are you guys doing today? Uh, Wonderful. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Bob. Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, we are uh, we are looking forward to talking about this uh, this uh, fascinating case that was the number one injury verdict in California for 2020. Uh, just fantastic work, and in a in a very tragic case. Um, but let me tell everybody a little bit about who Ryan and Bob are. I'll start with Ryan. Uh, Ryan is a uh, partner in the firm of Rosen Saba LLP. You can look him up at rosensaba.com. That's R-O-S-E-N-S-A-B-A.com. In 2016, they were voted as a top 20 boutique law firm at the da- in the Daily Journal in California. Uh, Ryan has uh, been involved in multiple, uh, just a string of uh, large verdicts and settlements, uh, especially within the past couple of years. Uh, represents both the plaintiff and the defense, so depending on the case, I've noticed, and um, we won't hold that against him, but uh, but uh, has have been involved in just some major cases. Had the number one verdict in California for tortious interference in 2018, and as I've already said, had the number one injury verdict in 2020, which we're going to be talking about. Uh, does uh, all kinds of uh, cases, including uh, uh, business tort cases, uh, obviously injury cases, employment discrimination, wage and hour class action and mass tort cases, has been a super lawyer since uh, 2014, was voted as a top 50 lawyer in labor and employment in 2018, and has been named in the best lawyers in America since 2018, and was also uh, uh, listed as West Coast top rated lawyers. Uh, and is a member of a boda, so can't uh, can't leave that out. So, Ryan, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Steve. I appreciate it. We look forward to being here with you today. Yeah, and uh, and and uh, Robert Carwin or Bob uh, is originally from Boston, I believe, and then made his way to San Diego and went to the University of San Diego School of Law. Was on the national mock trial team. Uh, interestingly, uh, uh, Yvonne, I don't know if you saw this. But uh, Bob is a member of city council for Menifee, California. And this case obviously involves a city case and uh, and uh, members of city council. So he had uh, particular insight into uh, into the cases they were doing. And uh, and I'm sure I'm sure, Bob, this case made you think about some of the decisions you make on city council when you're when you're doing that. 
Oh, absolutely. We can get into some of the things I told our city engineer after this verdict. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Why don't, why don't you come and sit in the back and watch, watch this trial? Because uh, you don't want this to happen in Menifee. <laughs> uh, absolutely. The, the, uh, I, I think one of the coolest things about Bob is that he is the, uh, the voice of the Paloma Valley High School football team and volleyball team. And, and I can already tell by just listening to him uh, talk here that he definitely has an announcer's voice. Go Wildcats. That's, That's all right. I have to say. <laughs> I know, Steve, I was thinking the same thing. I was, I was like, Bob, I don't know if you have a podcast, but don't don't put us out of a job. Yeah, that's right. right exactly. <laughs> I heard that there were not enough podcasts, so I'm thinking about jumping in. Yeah, Absolutely real not. Yeah, real podcast shortage. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Especially after the pandemic. I mean, everybody's yeah. home. nothing better to do. Why not start a podcast? I mean, you know. Yeah. Uh, I should have mentioned that, that uh, you can find Bob. Bob is a, a partner at the law office of Robert Carwin, and you can look him up at carwinlaw.com. That's K-A-R-W-I-N law.com, uh, based out of Menifee, California. So, um, so Ryan and Bob, it's just great to have you on the show. Uh, let me t- let me go go through this case a little bit and uh, at least give the background, and then you all can correct me where I've uh, messed things up, and then we'll just start talking about the uh, about the trial. Um, so the case was named uh, Nicholas Toussaint uh, by and through his father uh, Richard Toussaint versus the city of Hemet. Uh, and Joseph, <laughs> I got the thumbs up that I said it right. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and Joseph, uh, Gervais, who was, uh, the at fault driver. And basically what happened here is that, uh, Nicholas was, I believe 16 years old, a junior at West Valley high school, uh, in Hemet. And, um, he was, uh, basically going to his chemistry class. And it sounded like there's about three different ways you could get onto campus. Uh, one was on a road called Sanderson, which was kind of a busy road with that did have a, a light and a crosswalk. Then there was uh, this uh, area where he was crossing at, which was Morgan Hill and Mustang Way. And then there was the front entrance to West Valley High School. Uh, and at the, where he was crossing, there was a crosswalk. There were, uh, I believe some, uh, uh, a light, a lit crosswalk, maybe some uh, LED lights there to, you know, let drivers know. Uh, but it, it was known as a very high traffic area, known that, uh, that vehicles would speed along that way. And there had been a number of uh, either close calls and some incidents where uh, where high school students or children who are crossing had been hit by vehicles. And Nicholas uh, waited for the crosswalk. He uh, waited for the crossing signal, was crossing, uh, and uh, he was hit by Mr. Uh, Gervais, who was driving a Dodge Ram, I believe. I think I had that somewhere here. Uh, Was was hit by him going around 40 miles an hour uh, and uh, um, just severely injured, suffered a catastrophic brain injury uh, and was paralyzed, uh, was in the hospital in in a... um, in a coma for 30 days, uh, and just, um, uh, permanent injuries, uh, that we'll talk about more as we go through the, um, go through the case. And the, the claim that was brought was not only against Mr. Uh, Gervais, who was driving, but was against the city of Hemet, uh, based on that this was a, this crossing area was a dangerous condition and that they had notice and knowledge, uh, that it was a dangerous condition. And there, uh, 
were multiple incidents, including a incident that happened in February 20th of 2012. I should have mentioned that this this incident happened on March 24th of 2017, uh, but there had been a previous incident on, on February 20th of 2012 where three kids were hit uh, crossing in that same area. And after that, some changes were made to the crosswalk. Uh, and that's when they made it a, a lit uh, crosswalk um, and uh, tried, or at least from the city standpoint, I'll say, from the city standpoint, tried to make it so that it was a, a safer area uh, to crosswalk, but uh, not enough was done and they uh, cut some corners and it, it resulted in uh, this uh, injury to Nicholas Toussaint. Uh, at the end of the case, which was tried in January and February of 2020, uh, the jury awarded a, a total award of $25,656,686.58. Um, so uh, again, just a, a, a great result for a just a, a terrible case. And um, let me just ask Ryan and, and Bob, did I get the basic facts there? I may have uh, messed up a couple of things, but. No, I mean, the basic facts are definitely correct. Uh, this was a you know, situation where those three kids were hit back in 2012 and, and the city thought they were doing the right thing by installing uh, lights at that crosswalk. And, and that's what the case was all about was whether that was the correct decision or did they actually make that crossing area more of a dangerous condition? Right, right. And, you know, and, and we'll talk about this as we go through. But, you know, one one of the things and we've asked this several times on this um, on the podcast, but sometimes I like to think about, you know, when a case first comes in, what you think about the case and and. It just it, I was thinking about what this case would have looked like when it came in. Obviously, you have serious injuries. You have uh, Nicholas Toussaint, who was uh, uh, blameless and uh, just seemed like a, a great kid all around. But at the same time, you were going against a city. Those cases are always tough. Um, and then you also were going against a city who at least was going to have the defense where they were going to claim that they had tried to make this crosswalk safer. Uh, and so I, I guess what I'm wondering is, is did, was there any, um, uh, you know, second thoughts about taking this case or was there, you know, what did it, what did you see in it that made you go forward with it, even though the, the city was at least going to claim, hey, we, we knew that there was a problem here. We tried to fix it and we're real sorry this happened kind of thing. Well, when you get these kind of cases, one of the things that you focus on are the damages. And when you've got somebody with the catastrophic damages that Nicholas Dusan, who was 16 years old, he was a high school junior at the time. Um, and at the time that the case came into my office, I was the one who originated the case. Um, my, my family had been friends with his grandparents for many years, and it was very personal to me. So when I saw that this was happening, when they, when they first approached me, you know, Nick was still in intensive care in the first hospital he was in. And we, we looked at the photographs, we looked at the situation, and it was not an option to give up on this case. So we worked really hard. And I brought I brought Ryan in um, early on in the case, which I'm, I'm glad that I did so early so we could get the ground running right away. Um, so as far as there was never a doubt on liability in my mind. You know, when the the case first came in, I knew that he was in a crosswalk and had gotten essentially run down by a car. So from that standpoint, there was never a chance that we were going to face a defense verdict entirely. We right. had the luxury of a, of a private driver being involved. The question is whether we're going to be able to bring the city in and looking at the intersection, going out and visiting the scene and actually getting a sense of the surroundings completely changed the case. 
Yeah. And I'll echo that. Uh, it was early on when I remember getting the call from Bob and one of the very first things we did was we hired an expert, a road design expert, and we went boots on the ground and we went out there and we looked at this intersection and we measured, we took photos and uh, we did more than that. We started knocking on neighbors' doors, at, ask, you know, ask them, what's this intersection like? What's it like during school hours? What's going on here? And a lot of that was very important to putting together this, this sort of idea as to whether we can put on a, a full case that, quite frankly, that a crosswalk is in the wrong location. And that was really a very difficult thing to prove that it's, I mean, the city put a crosswalk there, a kid was in it, and a car came through and didn't hit his brakes. Right. The kid. And we had to prove that the crosswalk should have never been there and the kids should have been forced to go other directions. And that was a challenge that we sat around and talked about for hours and hours and, and, and thought about amongst ourselves with Bob and his team. I'm interested. What did the what did the neighbors say when you guys talked to them in terms of like, you know, they're not road design experts. What did they have to say? And in particular about that, that um, crossing area after it had been. Um, you know, marked differently or they had placed the lights and things like that? Uh, You know, that was one of the biggest motivating factors for us is it was almost unanimous that the neighbors were upset. Um, They were upset that cars were speeding down that street. And this crosswalk had no signal or no stop sign, right? It was just a crosswalk in a street. So they neighbors were upset that they saw cars nearly hitting kids or almost hitting kids or screeching brakes. And, and many of those neighbors had kids that were going to that school. And they just felt it was dangerous having their own children walk across the street. I remember we talked to one woman who said she will never let her kids cross at that location. She forced her kids to go up to the signal. And we couldn't understand why until she said, these kids are almost getting hit nonstop. And that was, and that was it. That's when we realized, okay, there's a problem here and we got to figure out a way to present this because there's a lot of challenges in road design cases, especially in California, to even getting to a jury. And so we, there's a lot of immunities and a lot of legal hurdles that you got to get over. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Bob met some people too. And, and tell about that uh, people you met, Bob. Well, one of the, the unique situations here is all of the entities that were involved, there were private citizens and there was the school district employees and there were some city employees all in a swirl were very eager to testify about this intersection. One of the things that I did, I don't think came out clearly in the facts was that this is the kind of intersection where there's a button on the side and you press the button and these white lights flash on the corners and they have LED lights in the street. But there's no red signal overhead. There's the cars aren't required to stop. And in fact, the California DMV guidelines are kind of silent as to what you're supposed to do if you encounter one of these. And the school district employees said we weren't allowed because it's not school property to put crossing guards out there. We weren't allowed to stop cars. So they would stand on the street corner and the crossing guards who were hired there, who were actually volunteers from the school staff. We're telling us that they would stand on the street corner and basically just wave and shake their fingers at cars going by who the kids were dodging cars all day long after they put in the crosswalk. And what had happened was the kids coming through the crosswalk say, I hit the button. The lights are flashing. I'm in the crosswalk. And then they stop being careful after that because they're immune. They're in a bubble. And when there's no crosswalk at all and you're crossing in the middle of a street, your head's on a swivel. You're looking for cars. You're dodging cars back and forth. But if you're in a painted crosswalk with lights flashing, you feel that you're immune, especially the younger kids who don't have that life experience. And that's what 
all of the witnesses were echoing towards us. There was an eyewitness who was a, uh, another student at the school who saw what happened. There was a woman who lived on the corner whose bedroom overlooked the intersection who had testified in front of city council that it was dangerous. The school employees, the district employees, all everybody we talked to agreed that it was just a matter of time. Yeah, I, one of the things I, I think we should point out is that uh, when the uh, incident happened, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, uh, Mr. Gervais did not hit his brakes at all. And I think the testimony was that he was going about 40 to 41 miles an hour when he struck Nicholas. Uh, and then there was testimony that Nicholas was found in a pool of his own blood and he was drowning in it and they had to get him on his side just so he could breathe. Uh, and, um, and just, you know, very, uh, um, um, you know, uh, ca you know, catastrophic type injuries and, and just terrible testimony about what Nicholas was going through. But, uh, you know, so I, I, I guess what I was wondering is what is this? I, I didn't see what is the speed limit there. And it sounds like just most of traffic was just disregarding what the speed limit was. Is that right? It was. Yeah. So the, the it's a school zone. So during school hours and that became a question, too, where, you know, it's it's 25 miles an hour during school hours. This was a what we call in California zero period, which is something technically before school schedule starts, but the school is open for business. So part of the debate came down to was he exceeding the speed limit or not? Because it's, I, I think it's, I think the speed limit is forty during regular hours. It's twenty five during school hours. Was it during school hours or not that he was that he was traveling? And that became part of the the complexity. I mean, it was it was like a it was like a law school test where the professor right. tells you, okay, guy runs through a kid in the crosswalk. There is a light flashing. Is he liable? Yes. Oh, I forgot to tell you, uh, it was zero period, and the school's not technically open, so that means the speed limit is ambiguous. Oh, well, in that case, then I think he's liable. Oh, I forgot to tell you, there might have been some mist on his windshield, and the torch professor just keeps adding facts as you go down. Uh, <laughs> Ryan and I went to law school together, and we remember Professor Urson and Torts would do, would do that. That was he was that was his mo, and it was one of those things that every single fact you could add on to make it more complex was sort of there. So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic, and it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the Internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is, is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there 
and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done, but they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website, and you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. When I was reading it, I was picturing um, the, like they have some pedestrian crossings on Buford Highway in Atlanta and it, it's similar. Somebody's got to hit a button. There's not like a stop sign that comes down. If nobody's there, you don't stop or anything. But there is like a, in addition to the Mark Cross walk, which I think maybe has lights on it. There's this like scaffold kind of thing that's overhead that has red lights that'll blink. So it's a lot easier to see. I still see people kind of cruise through that thing, but it's a lot easier to, to see versus... um what you're describing, nothing overhead. And it also sounded like you had some testimony or, or maybe even some, maybe even some, some evidence from the city itself where like during the day, you couldn't even really see the the lights that well. Well, I just want to point out one thing that was really fascinating about this particular trial. What you're talking about here with your experience of those types of lights, this jury never got to see the actual intersection. Because we went through this whole trial and there was uh, we were showing pictures of the signs and things like that. But the defense had put together a video of their expert driving through the intersection at different speeds and those kinds of things. And because of problems with the evidence, we were able to exclude it. So all the jury had was our description of what this looked like in order to rule on it. The jury never really, they didn't visit the scene. They didn't get good, clear pictures of it. So we were able to paint a picture of how difficult this intersection was to view from the driver's standpoint. And I think that really made a huge difference in the apportionment of liability in the case. Yeah. And I can tell you, from the defense perspective, their best arguments were this was the driver's fault. This was the driver's fault. He wasn't paying attention. There was testimony that he was maybe looking for his cell phone on the ground, um, that his windshield was dirty. And then they say after that 2012 incident where some of those kids were hit, we modified this crosswalk and there were zero incidents since that time. And so here they're coming in saying bad driver and we've done good and good luck to you guys going to jury trial on this one. And all we have is a, you know, a couple neighbors complaining that the speed's bad and that's really how they painted it. And uh, we came in swinging hard on that one. Um, and we felt that uh, we just felt that it was just wrong what they were doing. And, and we found this one a woman who was part of the school board. And interestingly, right after the accident, she met with the city engineer. And the two of them, she was a risk manager for the school board when the school was right across the street. And the city engineer sat down over a cup of coffee to talk about this intersection back in 2012. And it was during that meeting on a back of like a napkin, she says, we should put up a fence along the street so that way kids cannot go across the street. It would force them to go to either of the long ends where there's a physical traffic signal. And they said, alternatively, we could stripe this area and put in the embedded lights into the ground. But they had the conversation of talking about blocking off kids from that area. And then it just died from there. There was never any 
But we later discovered any engineering analysis or thought process or anything that went into whether one of those two options was correct. And what we've painted at trial was they chose the cheapest option, the easiest option. And then that was, a, and we were able to vilify the city and this engineer. We put a face, we put a bad guy in front of the jury rather than this entity. And we really honed in on just showing that this engineer took the short, easy, cheap way to try and solve a problem. And, and we really hammered in on that. Yeah, I, I noticed from your closing, Ryan, that, um, you know, this discussion that you said happened between the risk manager and the city engineer. I mean, it really was a, a really great visual. I mean, sort of like I could I could see this discussion happening, but how you say that she's sketching out on the back of the napkin, you know, this is how we should do it. But I think what she also pointed out was that one of the other high schools there in Riverside County, I think they did it that way or had a raised median or something like that and said, you know, we can easily do this here because we've already done it at this other high school. And then the city engineer, and and, and I want to make sure I get this right. And if I don't, please tell me, but basically it sounds like he had done some sort of a traffic study. So, so just so our listeners know that when a city decides whether or not there's a potential problem or something they need to look at, they, they commission what's called a traffic study. And then basically they send out a company or engineers who are going to study this particular intersection, see, you know, how many people go through there, how many vehicles, how fast they go, you know, all that kind of stuff. He did, it sounds like he did a traffic study at the entrance to the high school but not at the intersection of Morgan Hill and uh, in Mustang Way. Um, and then based on what he's or what they saw at the entrance way decide he then basically makes this decision on his own that they're going to do this crosswalk, this lit crosswalk. And then after they're already getting um, bids on doing that, after they've already gone through the process of, you know, you made a, a big a good point of saying that there's like this 90 page document that they had to put together in order for uh, people who are going to bid on it to fill out. And they already had that done, you know, and started the bidding process were basically almost through the bidding process b- before they even started doing a traffic study at the intersection of uh, Morgan Hill and Mustang Way. And by that point had already sort of made up their mind or the city engineer had already made up his mind uh, that they were going to do this crosswalk and then sort of just use the second traffic study that was done after the fact to sort of paper the file. Am, am, Am I getting that basically right? Yeah, no, you were dead on. I mean, that's exactly what happened is it was almost like the decision was made and then they went backward retroactively to try and make sure that they checked all the boxes to make sure that it would fly and that when they presented it to city council, they could say, we did all of the necessary studies and then the city council would then vote on whether or not this is something that should be installed. But they were voting on something that just wasn't true. I mean, he was flat out lying to the city council. And so when we found out that this gentleman was doing this kind of stuff, we we were, you have to remember, we were in a courtroom that's sort of a, a out, for lack of a better word, not in a main part of, you know, the Southern California area. It's, it's a little bit out there. And so we had a challenge where not the largest verdict that ever come out of that courthouse was like $3 million ever. And so this city of Hemet was not that far from this courthouse. And so some of the jurors were living in that city or had family living in that city. So we had to really strategize about how we can find a way for Hemet to be responsible and, and get a large verdict, but at the same time, not necessarily blame Hemet. And that was our way of doing it is we were able to blame the, the city engineer 
that lied to the city council. So it didn't seem like it was the city's council's fault, but it was really this is bad engineer and he was just a bad guy. And because of that, unfortunately, the city of Hemet had to pay. And that was really the uh, Bob and I sat around with a, a couple of scotches and did develop that plan before trial. But that's really how it worked out. Yeah. Well, and it sounds but like I do you want to point out, can I, Steve, can I just point yeah. out one more thing. You you mentioned in passing that there was the way you phrased it was there was another high school in Riverside County that had the design. The way it actually worked out was our traffic engineer said, here's what needs to happen and talked about the entire design of a fence and the setup and the crosswalks and all that other stuff. And then we pulled up a picture of another high school in the city of Hemet that was five miles from this high school that was exactly that. So it wasn't a matter of they didn't have the technology or the ability or the feasibility. The exact thing that they needed to do here, they had literally done at another high school across town. So it wasn't even like we were making up technology that they hadn't been able to consider. It existed in the same school district. That was the staggering part. So when we pulled up a picture of it, there was there was like a gasp where the the engineer said, "Here's what you need to do: it's a fence, blah 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 blah." And we said, "You mean like this?" We pulled right. a picture, and people <laughs> thought it was an artist's rendering of our expert's opinion. But it was another high school in the same district. That was the staggering part. Right. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you um, about. It, I mean, you, Bob, I think has already sort of touched on it that you had a lot of people who wanted to talk about this intersection and how dangerous it was. But it sounded like you had some really good admissions, you know, from a city council person, maybe from another engineer with the city, and then maybe even from this uh, risk manager at the city. Did was talk about some of the testimony from some of the city people. Were you able to get, you know, some admissions from them about how dangerous it was and what could have been done differently? Yeah. So in California, one of the elements to establishing a road design case is that the city has to be put on notice that there was an issue. Right. And so the biggest argument for summary judgment purposes and, and just motions to dismiss purposes, the city was making was that ever since they installed the new crosswalk, there had been no accidents. So they had not been on notice that our theory that this crosswalk shouldn't have been installed here correctly uh, was defective in and of itself. And by knocking on doors in the neighborhood, actually, literally boots on the ground, uh, we were able to find a woman who lived in the neighborhood who actually sat on the city's traffic commission. And we started talking to her and we're like, well, has there been any complaints about this? And she says, oh, yes, we had the following traffic commission meetings. And neighbors were coming in and complaining, yet none of those meetings were ever reduced to necessarily writings. And so had we not found her, we would have not had any necessary documentary evidence um, of that there were these complaints going on. And when she came in and testified in front of the jury, she's like, oh, yes, I sat on this traffic commission. We made the following recommendations to the city engineer, and he flat out ignored them. Um, And that was a big deal for sure. That we would have never found her but for knocking on the doors because her name never showed up on any of the documents or roles or anything that we would have ever looked for. And Ryan, wasn't that the lady? Wasn't that the lady we were knocking on? We were looking for a particular witness and she came out. It was Ryan's associate, Tyler, who was out there in the neighborhood. He was looking for a particular witness who he identified and somebody came up to him and said, why are you looking for her? And he said, well, because we're researching this intersection. She goes, oh, well, let me tell you, it wasn't a woman we had any knowledge of. And she came up to us because we were canvassing the neighborhood. 
Yeah. Yeah. I guess, you know, I'd love to point out at this point, I mean, this is just a great practice pointer, especially for young lawyers, for all lawyers. I mean, getting out to the scene, going around the neighborhood, you know, finding people who might have seen what happens, you know, looking for cameras, things like that. Uh, that is all so important and doing that as early on as possible. And it sounds like that, you know, a big part of uh, you putting this case together was getting out there early and just talking to people and finding out what they saw. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I will echo that in the sense that it also goes for uh, medicine. Doctors don't always put in their notes everything that they believe. And, and Bob will tell you a story about this. When we interviewed one of the key surgeons, Bob, go ahead and tell him. But we discovered this wealth of information from him. Yeah, and I don't know if you want to jump into the damages. Yeah, section, that's that's but, fine. We'll, 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 uh, we'll move around. But yeah, no, that's absolutely. I'd love to hear it. So and and it's kind of funny that the conversation is taking this path, because when we put the trial together, we actually uh, put on the plaintiff's case in chief going back and forth between uh, liability and damages, causation and damages to kind of keep the interest of the jury instead of doing this mega block of government documents and hearings and having everybody fall asleep. We'd have a, a witness or two and then we'd switch over to damages and back and forth. So it's kind of that same way kept interest. But there were one of the things that I'm really uh, proud of our effort in preparing this case is going out and talking to all of the doctors in advance and finding out from them what they remember, because there are some things that are not maybe necessary for medical documentation that the doctors just remember. This was a catastrophic case. This is one of those incidents where the doctors remember every second of their involvement. And I was talking to one of the emergency room doctors who was there through ICU. And there was a part where uh, Nick was starting to code. And he said, there were things that I was not allowed to do, but I said, I'm going to do it. And he basically you know, you see in, in TV movies and things like that, where the doctor stands up and says, not on my watch, you right, know, that yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> that was literally what was happening. And the, the people around him were saying, no, you can't turn the machine up to that level for oxygenation. He's like, I'm going to do it. And he talked about the personal investment that he had in in this young man not dying under his under his uh, shift, you know, his his guidance of the medical care. And it saved Nick's life. And we, that I mean, that kind of emotion from the doctor is nowhere in the records. I was going through and I, I asked the doctor, I said, is there anything that you remember in particular, any particular moment in the course of this care? And the guy said, yeah, there was this one moment and he told me this story. And I went, remember that story. And we put him right. on the stand. And when he was telling me, I was like, now, now I asked him the same question. And because we had talked about it, he knew what I meant. I didn't have to lead him. I said, you know, was there anything in particular that stood out in your mind? You see a lot of patients that told that story and every single juror just could not look away. And then they, the doctor would pause and they would look at our clients sitting right there and look back at them and see the connections that the doctors had to this young man. And it was just some of the most compelling testimony I've ever seen. I also really like that because I think that there can be, um, I think sometimes there's more focus on on speaking to treating physicians and stuff when maybe there's a certain um, element of damages that's going to be harder to establish in your case or something that's harder for the jury to get their mind around, you know, whether it's a traumatic brain injury or it's something where you need a little bit of help with the damages. And so maybe you spend more time with the treating physicians where 
this is a case where, you know, nobody's going to, you know, the, the catastrophic nature of the injuries is very obvious, but still putting in that extra effort, that extra work with the treating physicians, that in-person meeting, um, or, well, actually I say in person, I don't know if it was in person, but regardless, it was. um, that getting that story even makes a huge difference, even in a case where, you know, you're not necessarily going to have this issue about, um, about the fact that somebody's been injured severely. A lot of times the treating physicians are not super eager to testify in trial, right? as we all know, which is why you've got to bring in an expert to kind of tie it all together. But this was a case where we met with the doctors and we established the the connection we had with the case, that this wasn't just a file for us. We were standing up for this young man and they were all very, very eager to, to, to talk about their part. There was one doctor who I actually drove out to her home and she was making dinner for her kids and her husband was in the other room and I had the file out on her table, but she wanted to meet with me. And that was the only time she had between coming home from work and soccer practice. We met for an hour on her kitchen table and kind of just tell me what you remember. And those kinds of things really translated out into the trial. Well, and that's, and that's super important because as we all know, as trial lawyers, trials sometimes come down to singular moments or just key uh, pauses or just times where a jury is, a, you know, sitting there in awe of what a witness says, but those don't happen by accident. They happen with hard work and preparation and knowing that you can get that moment. They don't just coincidentally happen because you get lucky. And I think that's what Bob and I are trying to say is we put a lot of passion and effort in preparing this case. That way, when we got there and there were those aha moments or those moments where a witness was stuck and we had the jury just looking at uh, the other side with disdain or with sympathy toward our client, those were done by design, not done by luck. Yeah. How, um, so you mentioned um, briefly that when you had this treating physician testifying that they were, you know, riveted looking at him and looking at Nick, um, how did you handle Nick at trial in terms of, did you have him, how, how much did you have him there? Sounds like you had him there for some of the time. And then I also, Steve and I always are interested in how you, you, um, you know, what you did with Nick just in, in terms of the jury in, in general and, whether he was able to do anything for, for the jury. So Nick did not testify. Uh, we did not have him testify, but he was in court as much as he could. Um, from the beginning of Wadir through opening statement, we explained to the jury that he was not going to be there every day because he had, you know, uh, a bit, his didn't have the capability of sitting there every day. But uh, Bob and I definitely made one very uh, strong strategic decision which was when it was time for future care or future surgery or life care planners to testify about um, maybe the bleakness of what's going to be facing his future. Because Nick was very positive, was very um, optimistic about his future. But when you're in a trial, that's not the testimony you're putting on. Right. And so uh, we made the decision to not have Nick in the courtroom, not because it was necessarily the best uh, strategic decision for the jury, uh, but it was the right thing to do. Right. It was not it was not good for our client who already had a diminished mental capacity to have to listen to that. And uh, the father and the mother um, would come in and go. Um, they were obviously emotionally distraught at the whole thing, too. But the jury did see how we took care of Nick. Right. We made sure that he was there for key parts and maybe not for the bad parts. And I think the jury really appreciated that, uh, that we didn't just do what it took to, to win a case. But we were really looking out for this young man. 
Yeah. Yeah. And you had mentioned, um, I, I think it was maybe during your closing, um, a video that the jury had seen of Nick, of Nick taking maybe some initial steps after I guess the first steps he was able to after, did you show them, um, you know, a day in the life video, or did you just have some, some, you know, video the family had taken about his rehab or kind of ex- explain what you did there? Yeah, we, we were real lucky, you know, in this day and age, there's a lot more video and photographs that, you know, especially with Facebook and, you know, some of the other social media platforms, uh, we did put together um, our own day in the life video that we then uh, parsed in with some actual live footage from his rehab uh, facilities. Um, and it was very powerful stuff. Um, it was because it was true. It was authentic. We didn't try to over dramatize the situation. What we really tried to do was show the jury, this is what real life is. And I think it really came through to the jury. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them and uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah and I mean LTS I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we're on a first name basis (laughs) you know my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial texts, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. 
So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. Going back for a second to having uh, Nick there in the in the courtroom, one of the defenses that I noticed, I mean, there was multiple defenses they were putting on, a lot of them sort of immunity related or, you know, technical defenses because they were city. But uh, it sounded like they were basically trying to blame uh, Nick for not uh, watching out when he was crossing the street or or um, they, they even had an assumption the risk, uh, you know, at least in their pretrial order. I don't know how much they really... Uh, went after that at trial. How much did they try to sort of blame Nick? And I, and I, you know, going back to what Bob said earlier, which is, I think you all did a, a great job in the, at least in the closing that we read of, you know, talking about how when they're crossing in that crosswalk and the lights are going off that the, that, you know, they really feel like they're protected at that point. I mean, there's no reason they should feel danger because they expect traffic to stop for them. But how much did the defense really try and go after Nick and, uh, and blame him for what happened? Um, you know, the defense was it's everybody else's fault. It was Gervais, the driver's fault. It was Nick's fault for not paying attention when he, you know, went across the street. It was, you know, every, everybody but the city had fault there. And uh, they they subtly tried to do it. They were not as blatant of coming out and blaming, a, you know, a young man who had obviously been severely injured and saying it's 100 percent his fault. But they certainly uh, came out and said he should have been paying more attention not that I don't know what anybody would have done when a 40 mile per hour car is coming down. I mean, you know, you kind of go so fast and so different ways, but I mean, this young man pushed a button and walked across the street. He was going to school, you know, he was going to chemistry class, you know, I mean, he wasn't doing drugs. He wasn't, uh, you know, doing anything nefarious. He was going to school and to blame him was quite frankly, uh, appalling to me. And we, we, we kind of crucified him on that in the reply on closing yeah. argument as well. Yeah. Um, I was curious, speaking of closing arguments, Steve, I don't know if you if you noticed this and thought of thought of some of our cases, but it sounded like um, Mr. Gervais's lawyer did a pretty good job at um, piling on to, um, you know, pointing out kind of uh, the city's liability as well. And it, it made me think of a lot of times, in, you know, in Georgia, sometimes you'll have a defendant that's that's your venue dis- defendant. And in Georgia, um, even if they want to pay money and get out of the case, you might have to keep them in because otherwise you lose your venue in that county and it's going to get transferred and you'll lose your trial date or whatever. So anyway, sometimes you have a defendant in the case who's got liability, but they're not your target defendant, similar to this situation. But you don't always have them, their, their lawyers, I feel like putting in um, necessarily a ton of effort, uh, which is not to say they're not like doing their jobs, but you know what I mean? They're not, they're not like trying to win awards with their, with their closing argument or anything, but it sounds like you really had some, um, support from Mr. Gervais's lawyer. And I was just wondering how that, if that was sort of the case all through trial, if you kind of, um, or, or how that, uh, played out. Well, and, and let me so add to that, the, Bob, before you answer that. I, sorry, is that um, I, I wanted to point out that Mr. Gervais, the I didn't point this out at the beginning, but when they apportioned damages or apportioned the verdict, 80 percent was apportioned to the city. Only 20 percent was apportioned to Mr. Gervais, who was clearly at fault. Um, so I, I, I wanted to just add that little tip in there and just ask Bob also, how, how did he come across? Because it sounded like he just took responsibility for what he did. He, he definitely came across as remorseful at trial. But one of the, the motivating factors, at least for his 
defense in the case was that he was pay- facing potentially just crippling personal financial uh, obligations if the liability had been found against him primarily. You know, this would have been every penny he and future generations in his family would ever earn to pay for this. And I, I was very, in talking to his family afterwards, because we, we were in court for six weeks when we got to know members of his family and his counsel, uh, you know, in, in, in court meetings and things like that, we knew that they were, they were frightened. Mm-hmm. And so his attorneys for the defense really turned up the heat to do everything they could to protect him from just financial devastation. And, you know, you put that in perspective, you say, well, this young man suffered these injuries. You don't always have a lot of sympathy for the people who who caused the problems. But you realize as you get deeper and deeper into it, that on some level, the driver, Mr. Gervais, was also kind of a victim here because there's no way he wanted to hit anybody. He didn't do it maliciously. There weren't punitive damages alleged. We weren't saying he did it on purpose. In fact, he would he would much rather roll back the tape and have it never have happened. And I think that's the part that really came out. You know, when just from a factual standpoint, the contact between the truck and Nick, Nick is a really, really big guy. He's uh, at the time, I mean, he was 6'2", uh, 250 pounds, something like that. He was a big guy and he flew 90 feet in the air when he was hit. And one of the things that became clear was it's important to remember that this driver lived around the corner. He drove that street every day and they tried to make a point of saying, well, he's familiar. He knows it's a crosswalk, et cetera, et cetera. And it actually became more of a liability on the city because they're saying, look, if drivers who live in the neighborhood can't see the warning signs and can't see the children who know that they're there, how can anybody else who's going through there? And that's that's really part of what fired up the jury and helped them understand where he was coming from. You know, he and so he came across as there were some issues about his glasses and whether his windshield was foggy, but they were all just side issues. And I think the jury really saw that. Yeah, he may have been going a little fast for the circumstances, but he wasn't being reckless. He wasn't driving 100 miles an hour. He wasn't on a cell phone or anything like that. Things that really would have fired the jury up. And his his defense team was really uh, motivated. In fact, they they hired a uh, an accident reconstruction expert whose testimony was just devastating to the city of Hemet and in his testimony about things that could have happened to protect his own client, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Ryan, I wanted to ask you, uh, one of the things that we talk about on this show a lot is that in our view, trials come down to credibility. And, uh, you know, as plaintiff's lawyers, we already come in, you know, with uh, some strikes against us. You know, generally people think that plaintiff's lawyers are trying to pull one over. So we go the extra mile to make sure we always maintain our credibility with the judge, with the jury, with the witnesses, with everybody. I mean, you know, uh, and you really made that a theme in your closing argument um, about credibility. You want to talk a little bit about that theming and, and how you came up with that for this case? Yes. I mean, and you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, every time a plaintiff's lawyer in this day and age steps in front of a jury on day one, it seems like we're a little bit behind um, the eight ball. So for us, it's right out of the gate, starting in voir dire, coming off with very credible questions and uh, themes and right into opening statement. Uh, you, you know, we don't like to be bombastic. We like to just kind of state the facts and, 
and and tell our story and present the evidence. And on all through trial, we go through extra length to be credible, all to set up for that closing argument, right? Because we then want to be able to stand up in closing argument and say, look, ladies and gentlemen, look what we've done from beginning to end. We've gone out of our way to make sure everything that we've put in front of you is credible. We didn't, you know, exaggerate our damages. We didn't exaggerate our liability. We didn't bring people in here to, you know, tell you pie in the sky stories, but the defense has. Right. They, they are giving you uh, they put up witnesses that hopefully during trials that you've been able to impeach or you've been able to uh, make fun of and where they testify. And look at us. Look what we've done. We've come in here and done our job. Right. We've come in here and presented a case to you, a very important case. And that is what we try and do in every trial. And in this case, in particular, where we had somebody who we felt was a liar, who we made a big deal about and how we were very credible. Um, it becomes a lot more powerful because then those those jurors get into the jury room and then they really start talking about it. And that's also one of the things I, I really enjoy doing is I tell the jury, talk about all this stuff, get in there, argue with each other. Everybody has a voice. Every single person in that jury gets one of 12 votes and get in there and talk about it because we believe that. The more than uh, nine people for us in California, it's nine out of 12, right? Nine out of 12 people are going to believe that we put on a credible case. And that becomes powerful because then when you say at the end, this is what you should award. This is the number they believe you, right? You are not at that moment making up something just to make it sound high, right? You've come at the beginning, you've told them, this is what we're going to ask for. And at the end, you stay consistent. And that really uh, resonates with jurors in our in, in our experience. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, um, go ahead, Yvonne. Go ahead, Steve. No, you go ahead, Steve. Well, I was just, I was going to turn the discussion to damages because uh, I, I really wanted to hear, I mean, we know this was a catastrophic injury to Nicholas, um, but can you talk a little bit about um, you know, how bad his brain injury was and then he was he was paralyzed and then, and then how you presented damages uh, for the jury, you know, in, in order to, you know, get them to give the, uh, award they did. Sure. Well, so the, the, the crux of his injuries was he essentially suffered, uh, a stroke on the right side of his brain and they had to do a craniectomy where they removed part of the skull because his brain was so swollen and they managed to, to get that done very quickly. And they put him in a medically induced coma so he wouldn't further injure himself. And then they could do their, medical work on him. Uh, but the effect of the stroke left him with neurological deficiencies. The, the right side controls the left side, the left side of the brain controls the right side. So his left hand is basically immobile and it's, it's clutched to his chest and it looks, it looks orthopedic. It looks like you should be able to just release a tendon or something like that and, and have function, but it's not, it's, it's, it's a brain function issue. It's essentially a paralysis. And his, uh, his doctors were able to, we walked them through articulating that for us to explain that this isn't a matter of physical therapy. It's not going to help. There's nothing that can be done to reverse the condition that he's in. And that went through the whole left side of his body. So he's in a wheelchair he physically can stand. He physically can take several steps, but he wears a chest strap that his father holds him from the back because if he takes more than three or four steps, he can no longer support himself because of the, the, the paralysis. So he'll never be able to walk and he always has to have the wheelchair there. Um, so presenting 
the day in the life video showing what it takes to get him up in the morning, to get him bathed, to get him dressed, to do the small amount of exercise that his parents were doing because they were a family of very minimal means. Um, his father was a, a pizza delivery driver. His mother worked at Walmart. They lived in a small apartment in Hemet, uh, just three of them. Really cramped conditions that you saw in the Day of the Life video, but you saw the dedication of his parents to, to doing everything they could to rehabilitate him. You saw the efforts of the rehabilitation professionals when he was in the hospital, those kinds of things. So as far as presenting what his life was going to be like, there was no opportunity for improvement. When we were at trial, the doctors all testified that it had been you know, a year and a half to two years after the incident. He was at maximum physical ability. Everything else is just kind of maintaining at that point. And it was very credible, very clear. And it all made sense because it wasn't like a weakened muscle that you can strengthen. This was a permanent brain injury that you can't fix. You've got to show an adaptation to it. And the testimony from the defense experts about it was frankly laughable. You know, one of the defense uh, neuropsychs said that he was, he felt that Nick was able to work and support himself, that there was not a need for permanent disability income. But he also testified that he couldn't make change for a quarter. <clears throat> and I remember that moment specifically because I was cross-examining the neuropsych and he had his report here. And I said, you tested him. You asked him to make change out of a quarter and he couldn't do it. Right. But your testimony is that he's able to manage his finances, including a checking account and paychecks and bank accounts. And he said, yes. <laughs> and, and I just stood there for a minute. I mean, I didn't have a, I didn't have a question for a second because I couldn't believe he actually said it out loud. Yeah. Um, so presenting that. And then after we talked about what his physical limitations were and what he had gone through, you know, there was, Probably for me, the hardest part of the testimony, the trial testimony to get through was when Nick's mother testified about coming to the hospital. Um, she had been notified at work. She, so one of the, the the tear jerking parts of the story is he was walking to school. He had stopped at, uh, you know, he, he normally stops at Walmart, which is right up the street to get lunch money from his mother. And on this particular day, he didn't. And his mother was saying if he had come to work and asked me for money would have taken him another five minutes and this car would have gone past there and it would have never hit him. That kind of guilt was striking the family. Yeah. And his mother testified that she was called by somebody at the school that they had taken him to the hospital. She raced there and the doctor was wheeling him past into the operating room. And she, you know, I, I asked her, I said, when you saw him right there, did you think that was the last time you were ever going to see him alive? And she managed to say yes before breaking down. It was so emotionally uh, just striking to everyone in the courtroom that the judge actually called a recess and took us to sidebar and looked at me and says, yeah, I think you've made your point, Mr. Carwin. Um, let's get it. Let, let's move on. And uh, just because it was, I mean, you could see it in the mother's face, but the jury, the jurors are breaking out into tears for their testimony because they felt it. And you realized that they weren't faking it. And there was a permanence to this that was just irreversible. And then after that, Ryan brought on the uh, the life care planner who talked about what his needs were going to be physically, you know, that being um, adaptive vehicles replaced every so often. They were going to need a place to live that was suitable for physical therapy to happen. He was going to need medical because he wasn't going to be able to be eligible for state assisted medical if he got a verdict from the trial. So he was going to need to pay that for himself into the future. And those kinds of things, which were hard numbers uh, to blackboard for later on. 
Yeah. Uh, one of the things I liked that you did in the closing, uh, I can't remember if it was an economist or a life care planner. I think it must've been an economist who was using a, a different, uh, using a different discount rate or something like that. And, and Ryan, you said, you know, so we're, you know, this is the city who, cut, you know, we know cuts corners when they're, you know, uh, doing this crosswalk and they're doing the cheapest thing. And then we want to listen to them, you know, when it comes to, you know, how they're going to take care of Nick for the rest of his life. Uh, you know, hoping, that everything you know goes their way I, I thought it was just a great point and uh and a nice little uh jab at the city yeah well i mean and, and that's really what it was is when you have a case like this and the city's putting on evidence that the, the a plaintiff should get less money in the future right you're saying the life care plan is going to be x and in this particular case our life care future plan i think was about 12.5 million and they were saying he only needed and I don't remember their exact number, but it was about half of that to live. And I'm, and I, I was, it was appalling to me. I'm like, wait a second. These are the people that have done everything wrong, right? They, they've cut every corner. They've cheated every single way. And now they've basically said to you, hey, I know we've screwed Nick <laughs> by cutting all these corners, but we now want to do it again by taking money out of his pocket. And so he, he's the one now that should not have enough money to pay for his life care plan for the rest of his life. And where was he going to be? You know, he's the only one after that trial that has to live with this for the rest of his life. Those jurors go on their way and that city is going to keep operating. But this money was necessary for this particular plaintiff to support what he needs. You know, they, they, these were real hard numbers. And in our life care plan, I mean, we, the jury gave us 100% of our life care plan, 100% of our future lost wages, 100% of our past lost wages, all the hard numbers we got 100% of. Yeah. And, and that's a big deal. That's a testament to the credibility of how we presented those numbers, how our experts prepared, and we didn't exaggerate. And, and sometimes I try and tell lawyers at our firm and and co-counsel when we work on cases is don't try and overstep the bounds, get what's the real number and move forward because you'll get, you'll get your big verdict with all the other numbers, the, you know, the past future non-economic losses. Yeah. The the other thing I, I really liked about what, the way you did the damages and everybody should do this is you just brought in some of his friends and, uh, and had them testify about, you know, stories where they had, you know, maybe gotten in trouble together. I think there's one where he's climbing under a fence and ripped his pants on the fence, you know, and, and how, you know, he wasn't going to be able to have those stories anymore. He wasn't going to be able to, you know, run around with his friends or go play basketball or do the other things that he loves. And just a really good way of bringing that home of how, you know, you have the these economic damages that, that, that are take care of them, but you have all this, the, you know, non-economic, the intangible damages that are really what is the important part of life. The time with your friends, the time with your family, the time, you know, when you're doing the stuff you love. And, uh, and I liked how you brought that through with, uh, with getting testimony from some of his friends. You know, Steve, I, I want to point out that there was a moment in the trial where we're talking about the, the, their life care planner and his future needs. One of the things that we have in our life care plan was the the cost of future family therapy. And people don't understand the impact on the, you know, the parents didn't have their own damages in the case, but having a therapist work out the, the, the difference between his parents going from being his parents to being his care providers and the stress that that puts on the family and the dynamic that that changes in the family really made a difference. And having the mother testify and the father testified as well, and all the friends came up and testified to what life was like beforehand. We showed pictures of them at Disneyland, how they would, when he was growing up, they would. it was one of their favorite things to do. And then their life care planner said, 
that he didn't see a need to value family therapy for this family that was just devastated by this. And that testimony right there showed in a nutshell how the defense was coming across as completely callous and not really seeing the real life impacts. And so when you're talking about bringing the friends in, bringing the family in, showing the pictures of these real folks, and they said, ah, I think they're going to be fine. They're not going to need any of this. It was just unbelievable to hear. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's also hard because we're dealing with those clients all the time working on their cases. We're, we're working with them while they are in that situation, especially if they're from tough um, financial circumstances with, where they, they have made that adjustment from, you know, husband to caretaker or mom to full-time caretaker without resources, or at least not the resources they need without support, without therapy. And so you know, we see that just trying to do what we can for them in, in working on their case. And so I, I feel like I would have a hard, a hard time. Somebody saying that just not even from the expert sort of academic level, but also it's just sort of the, are you kidding me? Like, I know these people level. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, one, of the, one of the questions I asked, like, yeah, I asked the father on the stand, and this comes from preparation. I, we got to know the family very, very well. We've met with them, you know, countless times and gone through family stories and things like that. And, and one of the things that I asked the father on the stand was, you know, Nick was 16 when this happened. You've known Nick. They weren't an estranged parent. They were a family unit. They'd lived together the whole time. You've known Nick literally his entire life. Um, you've been there every day for his entire life. Today, when you talk to Nick, he's, he's now 17 or 17 and a half, 18 at the time of trial. When you look at Nick and you talk to him and you hear him, how old does he seem to you from how you remember him growing up? And this was on the stand. Then he paused and he thought about it. He looked at me, he says about nine or 10. And you realize that from all the testimony, that was it. That's where he was stuck. He was stuck at nine and a half years old for the rest of his entire life. And when you're talking about putting everything together and the damages, I, I think that testimony really just kind of mm -hmm. sealed where he was at and why it was so important that he had these resources going forward. You were going to say something, Ryan? Yeah. You know, when you're trying to get a large uh, non-economic emotional distress type verdict, you know, one of the things that we um, want to do is we want the jury to feel really good about giving the money to this family, right? We don't want them to think like they have to, or they're somehow multiplying the economic damages or they they feel obligated to do that. We want them when they're giving money to like go out in the hallway and hug the plaintiff afterward. Like they feel like they are the saviors. They are the ones that are now going to make this plaintiff's life uh, better. And they have come in and done their job and justice has worked. And they have presented to this family, a, not just a gift, but a basically a lifeline so that they can go on and enjoy uh, whatever is remaining in someone's life. And, and so that is a very tricky thing to do to get a jury to really, really not just feel obligated as, you know, jurors don't want us to be there, but get invested emotionally. So at the end of the day, they feel good about it. And when they feel good about it, sky's the limit. They'll, they'll give what, what basically what you ask for. Um, did, we didn't, we usually ask this, did you have a chance to talk to the jury afterwards? Um, and yeah. if so, what did they, uh, what they have to say? I think the one thing that was the funniest to me is 
Um, you know, when we were crafting our closing argument, one of the biggest arguments was how much do we tell the jury uh, should they give to the driver for percentage of negligence versus the city, right? Because we, again, we're trying to be credible. We didn't want to go in there and say it was 100% of the, uh, the uh, city's fault because that would just not be credible. And uh, ultimately, we, we picked a lower number and uh, counsel for Gervais came in and she's the one that said, uh, I think it should be 80 20%. And the jury was out for quite a while. And so one of the first things I asked the jury was, I said, because we're out kind of a long time, we were a little surprised. And she says, yeah, there was a lot of people in the jury that wanted to go higher than 80, 20, wanted to go to 90, 10, or even hundred percent. And we just didn't ask for it. They wanted, they were confused as to whether they should do it or not, because the lawyers didn't say give it higher. Right, right. <laughs> so uh, you learn so many things from uh, listening to the jurors, but we had obviously made the strategic decision that you can't ask for that because that might've backfired. Yeah. But um, yeah, the, 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 we definitely talked to the jurors, the jury, we were there a very long time. I mean, it was a long trial. Um, and uh, the jurors were very receptive, were very warm to the family, um, hung around a very long time, if I remember correctly. Um, and look, we had exceptional counsel on the other side. I mean, these other lawyers were true professionals. They, st they stuck around. They talked to the jury as well. Oh. Um, and in fact, Mr. Gervais even came up and thanked us for essentially what I think he believed was almost a vindication for him as well of not being, you know, more than 50% at fault at this as well, so, which was interesting because I did not expect that reaction from him. Yeah. Well, um, go ahead, you know, you go ahead, Steve. No, wait, actually, I want to ask this question because I just don't <laughs> want to forget. And it doesn't really have anything to do with anything other than that. I was curious. Yeah. Um, reading the closing transcript, it sounded like the city had played videos or something that, um, that they weren't supposed to play or weren't actually in evidence or were different versions of something. And I just was wondering whether that was really a big deal or one of those things that kind of looked like a big deal on the transcript, but, uh, didn't really matter. So there were two aspects of their videos that was, there were a problem. One of them was strategic. The other one was a technical error. So the first problem that they had was they had never taken their accident reconstruction expert to the scene of the accident. So they tried to admit the videos through his testimony, but he couldn't authenticate them because he'd never been there. So he didn't even know he was relying on his associate to tell them that it was an accurate representation of the scene of the collision, but he'd never been there. And I was cross-examining him on it and we were drilling him on that. And people were actually laughing out loud when he was talking about it. And the judge was not allowing them to show the video clips, we were objecting and objecting and objecting. Uh, I, this was his, dur during his direct rather uh, that they were trying to show the videos. We were objecting really uh, vigorously because he had never been there. So he didn't know what he was actually testifying about. And then we took a break for lunch and defense counsel got the expert in his car and drove him out to the seat of the accident during the lunch break of trial and came back. And in the meantime, they had called in the associate who recorded it from the office in Long Beach, which was 50 miles away, to come in and testify to lay the authentication for the videos. So that was the first thing that they did. It, it, would, it looked, frankly, it was, it was clownish. And then yeah. secondarily, they had these videos going through that for some reason when the technical person presenting their videos was showing it on the screen. It was coming out at a different speed than 
had been recorded and it was obvious. And they were trying to recreate Mr. Gervais's approach to the intersection. Now, this is the city of Hemet's expert. They were trying to recreate Mr. Gervais's approach to the intersection to show the jury what it would look like to him. And it was at like three quarters speed. And you could tell because of the way the surroundings were going by that it wasn't at the correct speed. And we, we went into judges chambers and they pulled the flash drive out and they put it in the judge's computer and it ran at the correct speed. But every time they ran it on the technical guy's laptop up to the screen, it was coming out slow. So the judge was saying it's an inaccurate representation. It would cause, you know, it would, it would be more prejudicial than probative because it's not accurate. So he wouldn't let them see it. And that was the problem. That was the reason the jury never got to see the scene of the accident because okay. the defense had planned on this big recreation that they weren't allowed to use because for some reason their technical translation didn't work on the speeds of the video that they did. And the judge was getting really, really angry with them for not for wasting the court's time and ultimately wouldn't let them show it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man, I would not want to be on that trial team for that that moment. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Right. It was uncomfortable to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I uh, we usually like to ask is uh, this was tried in Riverside County uh, in California. What is that venue like? I know it's it's east of Los Angeles, kind of in the central southern part of the state. What uh, what's what's that county like? If it tells you anything here in uh, southwest Riverside County, they have Trump parades. There's okay. trucks that go by with <laughs> right. Trump flags. They still fly Trump 2020 flags. Uh, it is what I call the reddest part of the bluest state in America. Right. And it is incredibly conservative. Uh, juries do not like to give general damages. You know, I, I was on the defense side for a while and it was I've had cases with admitted liability where the jury awarded zero dollars. <laughs> just because they just don't give general damages. You know, here in Orange County are kind of lockstep in that, but it's a very, very blue collar. If you if you want to ask a jury in Riverside County for money, you had better be right. Because right. if they think that you're just trying to play a game with them and ask them for money you don't deserve, not only do they not award you what you ask for, they will they will penalize you by awarding you less. Yeah. And it's a it's a scary, scary place to be a a, a personal injury plaintiff trial attorney. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. And that went into our analysis when we were, you know, architecting the closing argument is we had done statistical research on uh, this courthouse, on this particular judge, um, on, you know, surrounding verdicts in the, in the other surrounding courthouses where our jury pool was made up from. I mean, we had some deep knowledge of what was going on and we were, eight figures apart from anywhere where they were even thinking. And so we, you know, we did not want to go in and ask for some crazy number. Um, we wanted to try and tie it to as reasonable number as we could, just so we could hit our target. And, and ultimately that's what the jury did. The jury just hit our target that we put up there. And then that was designed that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think those themes of credibility and responsibility, those are important themes, especially when you're going into a uh, in, into a conservative venue. Um, did you uh, focus group the case beforehand? Yes. Yes, we did. Uh, we did a double uh, mock jury trial um, and uh, we learned a lot. And I'm a big fan of those, uh, particularly on big trials. Uh, because you can really learn uh, the themes and the weaknesses of your case. 
Um, you put on certain evidence and all of a sudden there are people saying, well, what about this? And what about that? And you've been living with a case for whatever, two, three years. And all of a sudden you've got 12 or 20 fresh eyes on your evidence. And they are all of a sudden seeing something that you haven't seen. And so in this particular case, we got some good themes. We got some good arguments. We got some good um, ideas from that. And we were a little shocked uh, uh, that we had a little bit more weakness than we thought. Uh, the both mock trials came back uh, with us not having more than like 50 50 uh, liability. Uh, they were much lower. And because of that, we were able to sort of pivot and make adjustments so that we could get more liability onto the city. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with the, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is I, I noticed part of the closing argument, there was this discussion about, I think it was, um, question number 13 on the verdict form. And it has to do with whether or not it hit the design had been approved by city council before construction began. And I wasn't clear on what, what is the legal effect of that? And it, because the, the jury ultimately found that it was approved, but what, what, what is the legal effect of that? So ultimately um, there would have been a post trial uh, briefing on that affirmative defense legal issue. Uh, and that was, there's multiple levels to what a court can do to essentially throw out a jury. And so there's one factual part, the rest is kind of discretionary by the judge, to be honest with you. Uh, but in that particular, in our particular situation, we never got to the post-trial briefing because our case ultimately settled um, after verdict before the post-trial briefing. So we never really got there. Um, but what would have likely happened if we would have kept going is the judge would have then had the opportunity to review whether that uh, vote by the uh, city council uh, was that whether the design was reasonable and necessary and a, a variety of other factors, which could have given the court the opportunity to vacate the award. Okay. Okay. Well, um, well, Ryan and, and Bob, this has been just a great discussion. I wanted to ask, is there anything that uh, we haven't talked about, about the Tucson versus uh, city of Hemet uh, case that you want to make sure our listeners have heard about? I will remind young attorneys, people who are getting their feet wet in trials. We talked about it at the beginning. You will be surprised at how a case changes for you when you go put your eyes on the scene where it happened. From the most basic rear end auto accident to the most complex liability cases, when you stand there and you see what the victim saw at the time of their injury, it really changes your ability to prosecute the case and get, getting into that early. Sometimes you can get out there before things are cleaned up or changed and you really get a sense of what happened. And doing that in this case made it a lot easier for us to kind of stand in our client's shoes and really represent what's going on in their lives. So that's, that's the biggest takeaway it just gave us so much ability to um, bring the case on behalf of our clients. So many weapons came from that, that I couldn't stress it enough. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my, my probably biggest takeaway was, is that you got to have a level of confidence in your case and mock juries help with that. And, but once you have a level of confidence on your liability and your damages as trials go on, and we've all seen it is, you know, maybe you get into trial because there's a low ball offer, but at some point, real numbers are going to come at your way. And in this particular case, we had some 
big numbers thrown at us. Uh, as the trial went on, the numbers got bigger and bigger and bigger. And ultimately we had to have the confidence. We had to have the fortitude to, to advise the client properly, because as Bob said early on, I mean, this is a family that, you know, he, he delivered pizzas and she worked at Walmart. I mean, these numbers are astronomical to them. And so we had to be able to sit there and say, Hey, jury's deliberating right now. There's this huge number that's in front of you. Do you take it or do you not? And this is, you know, certainty. If you take it, we don't know what this jury is going to do, but we had such a high level of confidence in, in our knowledge of the case and, and the situation that we were able to recommend him not to take the money. And obviously that turned out well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, we really appreciate your time. Let me remind everybody, we've been talking about the case of Nicholas Toussaint versus the city of Hemet and uh, Joseph uh, Gervais. Uh, it was tried in January and February of 2020 in Riverside County, California, and resulted in a 25.6 million, well, $25 million verdict, uh, a little bit more than $25.6 million. Uh, dollar verdict. And we have been talking to uh, Ryan Saba and Robert Carwin. And uh, Ryan is a partner at Rosen Saba LLP. And you can look him up at rosensaba.com. That's R-O-S-E-N-S-A-B-A.com. And you can look up uh, Bob Carwin at carwinlaw.com. That's K-A-R-W-I-N-L-A-W.com. Uh, Ryan and Bob, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, guys. We really appreciate it. The real pleasure. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast. And we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.